welcome to Season 2, Episode 12 of the Story Grid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer, following the Story Grid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years' experience. Each week, we watch a movie from one of the 12 content genres and complete a global Foolscap worksheet, then discuss it using the six core questions. My name is Valerie Francis, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Joining me shortly are four of my fellow certified StoryGrid editors, Jari Bolander, Anne Hawley, Kim Kessler, and Leslie Watts. If you're interested in hiring a certified StoryGrid editor or would like to find out more about what we do, visit storygrid.com editing. And if you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. Okay, this week, we're breaking into the crime genre with the 2008 caper comedy, Mad Money. It was directed by Callie Curry, the Oscar-winning screenwriter of Thelma and Louise, from a screenplay by Glenn Gers. Here is a synopsis of the film adapted from Wikipedia. This film is about three women, Bridget, Nina, and Jackie, who steal money from the Federal Reserve Bank in Kansas City. Bridget Cardigan lived a comfortable upper middle-class life until her husband Don was downsized from his position. The couple sink heavily into debt, and Bridget, who had been a stay-at-home mom, is forced to go back to work. With no marketable job skills, the only work she can find is with the Federal Reserve Bank as a janitor. On her first day on the job, Bridget hatches a scheme to steal worn-out dollar bills slated for destruction. For her team, she chooses Nina, who works in the shredding room, and Jackie, who takes bill carts from the Secret Service room to the shredding room. The plan is this. In the Secret Service room, Bridget will switch the official master brand lock on a cash cart with a near-identical lock she purchased at Home Depot. Then she'll tell Jackie the cart number and give Nina the official lock. When Jackie gets the chosen cart, she takes some of the bills from it and dumps them into the trash before bringing the cart to Nina, who replaces the bogus lock with the official bank lock and proceeds to shred the remaining bills. Meanwhile, Bridget, in the course of her janitorial duties, retrieves the dumped bills from the trash. Their first robbery is a success, and they repeat their scheme amassing untold fortunes and eventually bring one of the bank's security guards in on their secret. Eventually, authorities get suspicious, and although the women and their significant others try to destroy the money, all but Bridget are arrested. She hires a lawyer who gets everyone off the hook for their crimes, provided that they forfeit all remaining stolen cash. Eight months later, Bridget reveals to Nina and Jackie that she had, in fact, stashed away much of the stolen money. The film ends with the three women squealing and tossing cash into the air. Alrighty, we will begin as always with the global genre. Kim, you're up. All right. This is a crime story, of course, um, with a subgenre of caper. So in the crime genre, the life values at stake are justice and injustice, and the spectrum going all the way from you know tyranny to injustice to unfairness to justice. 
So a crime story, as we know, begins with a crime and it builds with an investigation of the crime and pays off with the identification of the perpetrators. It's resolved with the perpetrators either being brought to justice or getting away with the crime. So interestingly, in this story, they do get away with the crime. And Leslie has some great information to tell us all about that in just a minute. Specifically, because this subgenre is a caper, the story is told from the point of view of the criminal, and it focuses on them committing the crime. So here, it rather than beginning with the crime itself, like an investigator figuring out that a crime has occurred, it begins with an opportunity for a crime. It builds, rather than with the investigation, it builds with the preparation for the crime and the committing of the crime. And it pays off with a close call on getting caught. Lots of times in capers or other heist movies, there's possibly a double cross, you know, and someone does get caught, but someone will get away with it in the end. And so it's slightly different take on a crime story and how crime takes place rather than it being from the point of view of the investigator. It's the point of view of the criminal and them actually conducting the crime. So in crime stories, the core motion is intrigue. So people choose these stories to experience the solving the puzzle. In a typical crime story, we want justice where we're keeping the world safe and we want the criminal to get caught. But in this case, we are rooting for the criminals and we want them to get a different kind of justice. Sean lists a couple other examples for us for caper stories, such as Ocean's Eleven and Sexy Beast. I know my fellow editors did not enjoy this movie, but I enjoyed it. And it's been 10 years since I'd seen it. And I say enjoyed and it didn't bother me, I guess. A lot of the things that bothered that you will hear bother them didn't bother me. And and I'm I'm still working it out why that is exactly. But I did realize that when it comes to taste, my favorite crime stories are heist stories like The Italian Job, Heat, The Score. And specifically, I did used to work in banking as a compliance officer and an auditor. So I did enjoy all of the nerdy bank references. But those are tastes. Those are not necessarily a story <laughs> structure editor elements. Okay, so caper stories caused me some preliminary head scratching because crime stories are about justice and injustice. And yet these stories end positively when the protagonist, criminals, get away with the crime. So I was like, what's up with that? And I decided to get to the bottom of it. Like the noir story we analyzed in season one, Double Indemnity, the caper is a crime story from the perspective of the criminal. And we explore what drives ordinary people to commit crimes. We explore how we define justice. And at least in the US, we're also looking at the links people will go to in pursuit of the American dream. As opposed to looking at the dark and gritty side of injustice as noir, capers use comedy to distance us from the emotions evoked by financial insecurity. And modern caper stories employ irony, as in O. Henry's story, The Ransom of Red Chief, and are inspired by elements from the tales of Robin Hood. So given this provenance, I would say that the typical range of life value for a caper starts with the negation of the negation at tyranny and moves to the positive value of poetic justice. I love that, poetic justice. So talking about the internal genre, I I landed on status sentimental, and I would love anyone's input on this. So it was interesting to look at because in this case, you know, we have ordinary people who choose to switch to crime. And so it seems at first like, well, maybe this would be a morality tale. So I had to go through and basically decide what it wasn't. And in this case, it's not punitive. So even though we have, you know, law-abiding citizens who take on crime, 
in a punitive story, it's the good guy goes bad and is punished. But in this case, they're not punished. They do get away with the crime. So then I started looking at, well, maybe there's some level of morality testing going on. So there are these moments, but not really. So there's there's some moments when, you know, it appears that maybe Bridget's leaving everyone with the bag during the interrogations when, you know, they could roll on each other at any time. They never give up their loyalty to each other. So that could be, you know, an element of triumph there that they don't give in. But it seems like in order for the audience to accept that you're going to get away with the crime, you know, you do have to show that you've earned it by being morally sound in other ways. So the testing element didn't really come in till the end. And so it didn't really feel like it was a substantial aspect of the internal genre. So in the end, if it's not morality, then it seemed like it needed to be status. So they all start out in some sort of financial need and possibly lacking in some tight knit relationships. But by the end, they are wealthy, you know, with tight knit relationships, you know, with each other, as well as with their spouses. The group seems to act as mentors for each other, which forges this loyalty, and that's the key to their rising and their circumstances to success. And also, they do change their definition of of success in the ending payoff. For a while, anyway, they do choose to give up the money and stay true to one another until, of course, Bridget surprises everyone with her secret stash. So status sentimental, they seek to rise in society, go up in some status, and they do succeed. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned the core emotion being intrigue. And I know we're going to talk about this throughout the podcast. So for here, I'm just going to mention that I was not intrigued at all. So I wondered if maybe that was one of the reasons why this story didn't work for me, because the core, we didn't hit, or the writers didn't hit the core emotion for the crime caper. Although I have to say, I really appreciated Leslie's distinction between the heist and the caper, because honestly, until we came to this, I don't think I'd ever given that any thought. Um, And did you have something you wanted to add as well? Yeah, on the value range of a crime story, which can run as far down as tyranny all the way up to justice, this one lacked for me, partly because the worst thing that happens to any of them is a little bit of unfairness. So it goes from unfairness to some sort of vague sense of restitution or, I mean, it's not even revenge. So it just lacked a lot for me in the value range alone. Okay, so now we're going to go to the beginning hook, middle build and ending payoff. Jari, would you like to take us through that? Sure. In the beginning hook, protagonist Bridget needs to figure out how to get a job because they're going to lose their house because her husband's been downsized. So she needs to figure out how to save her house and also save her status in society because they're rich white people. So she gets a job at the Federal Reserve as a uh, cleaner and then soon realizes that, hey, I can steal all the old money that's being shredded. Middle build, well, they actually successfully steal money but they got to figure out how they're going to make it look like they legally earned it because if they're a bunch of hourly workers at a Federal Reserve, they can't be extravagant. So they all got to figure out how to get jobs as a front. And then uh, the ending payoff starts with a bank investigator, uh, starts to kind of look at some of these abnormalities and, you know, maybe something's going on, something's amiss, which means that the gang needs to figure out how to hide the money or else they're going to get caught. So they start destroying the money. And eventually they all get rounded up, but then they get off on a technicality. And then the the end or the resolution is, well, they lay low for a while. And then Bridget shows the girls, hey, look, I actually hit a bunch of money. And then, as I think someone mentioned, they throw the money in the air and they all do the happy dance. 
I <laughs> I really didn't like this movie <laughs> at all. What they tried to do in the beginning was, you know, we had, we had analyzed last season Double Indemnity where there's actually a confession. There's really no confession in the beginning, but they're basically showing you ahead of time that they get caught. Well, now you, you want to like procedurally figure out, well, how did they get to that point? And it's supposed to set up some suspense, but this thing was just so telegraphed. I was not a fan. So I'm just going to shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Go sulk in the corner and try to burn, unburn the image of this in my head. Okay. Well, while you're um, sulking in the corner, we're going to move on to question number three, which is what are the obligatory scenes and conventions of the crime story? And would you like to take us through the obligatory scenes, please? I will. And Jari, you can go hide in a corner because you didn't like this movie, but I actually bought this movie because I didn't realize it was available for free on (laughs) Netflix. So silly me. Um, The obligatory scenes of a crime story are, first of all, an inciting attack by the villain. Now, this starts out seeming like it's big corporations or the economy or something like that, but it changes over the course of the movie who the villain actually is. But the inciting attack of Don losing his job is what triggers Bridget having to find a job and then suddenly discovering that she is this latent criminal genius. The other two characters, Nina and Jackie, their inciting incident is Bridget getting the job where they both work, and then she incites them both into the life of crime. The next one is Hero Sidesteps Responsibility to Take Action. Now, I didn't see this one here very strongly at all. Bridget herself is, she never sidesteps anything. And Nina is the only one who demonstrates the hero sidestepping. She says no to the concept of robbing the Federal Reserve twice before she finally reconsiders. Uh, The next one is forced to leave the ordinary world, the hero lashes out. I felt like this happened out of sequence. Bridget is forced to leave her ordinary world by Dawn's, her husband's, unemployment and their debt, but she never sidesteps responsibility. So she's forced to leave her ordinary world early. And the only lashing out I could see is her decision that she's going to solve their problems by crime. She's lashing out against the changes in her life by saying, okay, then I'm going to steal a bunch of money. The next one is discovering and understanding the villain's object of desire, the MacGuffin. It seems to me like the villain has shifted and is now law and order. It was like corporations and it's now law and order in the form of Glover, the uh, head of security at the Federal Reserve. The big corporate villain who made Don lose his job never makes another appearance. Uh, Mr. Glover's object of desire is clearly to be known as, you know, Mr. Top security guy. So he wants reputation, the reputation of running a secure facility. And he presumably also wants the place to be secure, but we see him as such an idiot. He's such a moron that he doesn't actually know how to make that happen. Next, the hero's initial strategy against the villain fails. Here, the women's strategy succeeds until past the midpoint, where then in the framing story, Bob says, one tiny screw drops into the supposedly perfect machine. And in this case, it's the key falling down the drain, which causes a delay that arouses the suspicions of the the nice guard, the the well-trained security guard. And the women's entire strategy has to change because they have to include him now. They got to co-opt the nice guard into their scheme. The next one is realizing they must change their approach in order to salvage some form of victory. The hero reaches an all-is-lost moment. Well, We know from the outset that they all get arrested because that's in the framing story. So the all is lost moment seems to happen 
when we, um, the audience and also the other five characters, learn that Bridget has apparently betrayed them all. This doesn't turn out to be the case, but that seems to be the moment. The next is the hero at the mercy of the villain. This is the culminating scene of the crime story when the bank examiner and the local police stake out all three couples. The couples destroy their stashes of money, but it's too late. They all get arrested. And we see them getting interrogated by the police. But Bridget is cornered by the bank examiner. And you'd think this would be the hero at the mercy of the villain scene, since she's kind of the hero of the story. But it seems to be almost vice versa, where she puts the bank examiner at her mercy. She kind of blackmails him, sort of. It kind of switches around, and it doesn't quite work. Finally, the hero's sacrifice is rewarded. This happens by... A technicality. The chief of security, that's Mr. Glover, can't actually admit that the money could have possibly left his highly secure bank. So they all get off the hook, basically for lack of evidence. And the sacrifice appears to be that they all destroyed their money and agreed to give back whatever they haven't destroyed. But it turns out that Bridget's sacrifice was only really nothing more than waiting for a few months and going without for a few months until she could reveal that she has apparently stashed millions of dollars away for them all to share. Okay. And if this was a script brought to us by a client as editors, what kind of advice would we give? So if Callie Curry was, or was your client, (laughs) um, and these are the set of obligatory scenes that she brought to you, what kind of advice would you give her? Well, first of all, I uh, and this doesn't go to obligatory scenes so much as it goes back to the value range. I would say that to make the stakes higher, it's, you know, these characters, they don't have much, I mean, they're hard for us to sympathize with. We don't really understand who they are. So we don't really get a feeling for why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, the villain, the operative villain, the antagonistic force uh, changes early in the story. So these women are not getting back at the villain who attacked them in the first place. There's a lot of little things like that that make a big difference in how the story is going to feel, how it's going to land with the reader. Have one consistent villain. Give these characters a backstory so we understand why they're doing what they're doing. I agree with most of what you're saying there. The The villain can change because it's it's a role, it's not a character. However, in saying that, it's a pretty advanced writing technique and it's hard to pull off. So if you're going to switch the villain, you've really got to have a compelling reason for that switch and you've really got to set it up so that the reader or the audience buys into it. And I agree with you. In this case, I don't think they, they quite pulled it off. So moving on to the conventions of a crime caper story. Leslie, would you like to bring us through those, please? Sure. So caper conventions are best understood in light of what I mentioned earlier, that caper stories explore what drives ordinary people to commit crimes, how we define justice, and in the U.S., the lengths to which people will go in pursuit of the American dream. So Bridget says, crime is contagious. People catch it from each other. And when they catch it, they change. And then they change other people. The truth is we're all capable of anything. You don't want to believe it's true, but it is. So the question is, do we believe her that we could, we as the audience could be in her position and might make similar choices? That seems to be the challenge that she issues in the beginning. So that's the setup. Okay, so the MacGuffin 
is an, a convention in a crime in a, any crime story, and this is the villain's object of desire, and it's also the key to their plan. How does the hero villain inversion of a caper affect that? Not much. The tyrant antagonist here and the criminal protagonists both want cash, though the security needs behind the desire for the cash is different. Glover, who's the head of security, wants the cash until it's properly destroyed because he needs the Federal Reserve Bank to be a totally secure environment. The protagonists want the cash because it represents, or it's a, it's a tool to provide them financial security. We also have in a crime story, red herrings, and we've got, it's a little bit different because of the, in presentation, because again, the protagonists are the criminals. So we see them set up and it's more about, will the authorities catch on and how will it be discovered that they've been misled? Or will it be discovered? And the big red herring in this story, thanks for this to Anne, um, the cash on hand that they had in their homes versus the cash that was stored at juniors. And that the authorities don't know that what they get from the criminals is actually just a fraction of what they've taken. The next convention is making it personal. So Glover needs the Federal Reserve Bank to be a totally secure environment. And this creates an interesting payoff in the end because he would rather let the protagonists get away with theft than admit that his system has been compromised. There's also a ticking clock. And we learn that the bank examiner is on to the protagonist and it's just a matter of time before they're caught. The subgenre specific conventions are actually a lot more interesting to me. So we have the type of protagonist. We typically have a clever every person with an audacious plan and an ensemble cast of misfits or lovable rogues. These are amateurs, not professional criminals, as you would see in a heist. The motive is usually to gain financial security and to right a perceived injustice. But as Anne points out, we don't quite get to injustice. We're just really at a vague unfairness. But there is a sense in these stories, typically, that the criminals are in it for the fun and the challenge as well. Okay, then we have the specifics of the circumstances. The protagonists lack financial security, often because they've been the victims of a crime at the hands of a tyrant or similar figure. And each member of the cast possesses a unique skill or has access to the vulnerable source of wealth that is the MacGuffin. Another circumstance that's really important in these stories is that they can't pull it off unless everyone does their part. Finally, the plan is audacious and beyond their skills, it's a, it's a challenge. And the crimes usually involves thefts or swindling rather than killing. So if we look at this story specifically, Bridget is the clever leader with the plan. She has access to the empty money cart so she can change the locks. And she also empties the trash. She's financially vulnerable because her husband was downsized and there are a lot of other factors there too. Her motive seems to be to pay off her debt, but clearly she enjoys the 
thought or the the belief that she's the only person who's come up with such a clever plan. And pulling this off under Glover's nose is a big thrill for her. Post-Great Recession, I don't think this character is very sympathetic, even if she might have played well before 2007. And I'll say a little more on that in a moment. Nina has access to the keys for the money cart. She's financially vulnerable because she wants to get her sons out of a not great neighborhood school. It's hard to square, though, her devotion to her sons and her willingness to risk prison, which would leave them alone and even more vulnerable. Even when it's Queen Latifah playing the role, it's not quite working. And in novels, remember, an actor isn't going to be able to save you. So you really need to nail the character and make their reasons for doing things make sense. Jackie the third member of our ensemble, has access to the money carts. She's financially vulnerable, but it's a kind of vague, she's young, working class, she has early onset diabetes, but she's not even all that unhappy with her lot in life. She agrees immediately to the plan and says, why not? This is really unsatisfying to me, even as a carefree character who will sign up for anything and isn't concerned about the consequences She doesn't have a social position like Bridget or children like Nina at stake. So she really needs to want something badly for the audience to relate to her, which is why I don't think this role works as well as it would if she had a clear want or need. Okay, the next specific convention is the type of antagonist with the villain hero inversion that we get in a caper. It creates the need for bumbling or corrupt law enforcement officers and or a greedy tyrant as the victim of the plan. And we need these people to be unsavory so that the audience can sympathize with the criminal protagonists. We have we do have some bumbling law enforcement. I think that's covered. Glover is in the role of the greedy tyrant victim. Objectively, a person in this job wouldn't be unreasonable for wanting tight security, but he's presented as an obsessed voyeur. So we won't feel sorry for the, or so that we will feel sorry for the women and not him. I, I'm not sure that it's that effective, at least from my position, looking at it this way, but mostly I think it's because the women aren't, as sympathetic as they could be. So I felt like I was nitpicking more. I mean, even him as a villain, Mm -hmm. he's just not a good villain. I mean, (laughs) he looks like a, what was he originally from? What, what, what show was that, that guy in? Cause he looks just like a nincompoop. He's not even like smart. He's just, he, he feels like he's from like the office, the basement in the office, with the guy with the red stapler. I think that is. I think that is who who he is. <laughs> so awful. Sorry to interrupt. I had to say it. I just I've been stewing here, just waiting, and I'm just boiling over. Okay, Sorry. back to your corner. Let Leslie finish. Back to your corner, Jerry. <laughs> okay, so. We have style conventions for a caper too. As I mentioned earlier, this is a comedy. They're lighthearted stories. They aren't intellectually challenging and nobody gets hurt, at least not too badly. So when we have, you know, a comedy versus a drama, the 
main difference is that the gap between expectation and result has to be funny. And according to Robert McKee, it's not clever lines and gags, but that the turning point is the focus and you make that funny and you take it to an off the wall extreme. The ensemble cast of misfits in a caper makes for great tension and humor. You've got the the potential because their differences annoy one another and they are going to have to work together to pull off the plan. And the problem I think with this story is that it seems to promise a somewhat serious tale in the beginning that we're dealing with some serious challenges for people and that it's going to be delivered with irony and some humor. But what was delivered by the end felt really slapstick, uh, zany and silly, which I think is fine in a caper if that's what you telegraph at the opening, but I don't think they really did. The link between the styles at the beginning and the end felt way too different to support the connection without a story-related reason for that shift. McKee also notes that comedy allows the writer more leeway in narrative drive, that is, the forward-projecting mind of the audience. It's the, the story engine, essentially, that pulls us through. And you can include in a comedy scenes that are solely for the laughs. Um, We also get a little more leeway for a deus ex machina ending where something kind of magically swoops in and saves the protagonist. But only if the protagonist has suffered by the audience's standards and the protagonist never gives up hope. So how well does this particular movie deliver on that? Well, Bridget certainly never loses hope, even when the others were ready to give up. So the movie does really meet that second condition. But as for the first, Bridget's upper middle class lifestyle doesn't really evoke much sympathy. And that multinationals merged her husband out of a job. In other words, powerful corporations are further up the food chain and misfortune is relative doesn't really cut it. Her husband keeps her in the dark about the extent of their debt, and her neighbor is condescending, but none of this is really super compelling. Now, she does suffer age discrimination, which made me angry, but it feels like it's not really enough. Now, depending on the audience, it could possibly be, but the suggestion is planted in the opening that the audience might do something like this too under certain circumstances. And so I don't think they quite get there. Thanks, Leslie. Okay, that brings us to question number four, the point of view and the narrative device. Kim, can you take us through those? Okay, so the point of view here appears to be omniscient because it does switch around a lot, but it is focused on what an individual is seeing. So whether it's Bridget, Nina, Jackie, the security guys, Mr. Glover specifically on the screen, it is focused on what people are seeing. So we don't get the omniscient third person ultimate narrator, but we do get lots of third person limited point of view and switching between all the characters. The narrative device here, as has been mentioned, is set in a framing story. So it begins at the end. Everyone is speaking directly into the camera about what happened. Bridget seems to be in some kind of restaurant, but the others all appear to be in some sort of police interrogation room. So 
we know that, okay, it seems like Bridget gets away with it, but everybody else gets caught. And so this leads to some dramatic irony. We know that they get caught, but Bridget gets away. And um, yet no one seems angry about it. In fact, they're just talking about it really calmly about what happened and praising Bridget for her genius and that sort of stuff. So this raises some intriguing questions or that could be debated whether or not they're intriguing, but raises questions of, of us wanting to understand what happens. And then we flash back three years before Bridget had ever worked at the Federal Reserve. And that's when we find out her inciting incident as to why she needed the job and all these things. And then complete the crime over a course of three years. And by the end of the story, we've caught up to the present. And then we continue from there in linear fashion, where Bridget comes back and gets everybody out of jail. And then we jump ahead eight months to the final scene where they reunite and Bridget reveals that she stashed a bunch of money. So that's the the framing device that we have there that does start with dramatic irony, but then leads us to whether we want to call it suspense or or mystery, because we don't know that Bridget has stashed the money. Okay, would you like to take us through the last two questions, then the objects of desire and the controlling idea? You bet. So the want is going to come from the external genre. So here, because it's a crime story and a caper story, that their want is to get the money, to commit the crime and get what they're after. Their need is going to come from the internal genre. And in this case, as a status story, they want to rise in society and the money is that object. But in this case, what they need really is to change their definition of success. So it's not just about money and financial security. It's about relationships and the connections that they have to one another. And that that's the true kind of security is not necessarily going to be about money, but about relationships and friendships and loyalty. So we've talked a lot about this already, and I just want to point it out here specifically with the wants and needs, talking about the character's motivation. You know, here we know that they want the money, but it is really important to set up that motivation to support why they want what they want. And here we have that failure of credibility in several aspects because why they conduct the crime and exactly what Leslie had mentioned about Bridget's character staring in, you know, crime's contagious and ordinary people when you're presented in these circumstances. And yet we don't relate to her. We don't relate to um, her dire straits just aren't that dire. Like you have to move out of the neighborhood. It's okay. You're going to be all right. So I think that is definitely a really important thing to check. And this is a probably a good spot when you're completing your editor six core questions on your own story to look at when you really get down to the wants and needs of your characters, have you set up those things to make it where the audience can understand? Is it credible? Is it empathetic? All of those things. And not only just with Bridget, but with Nina and Jackie also, and all of the characters involved, even Barry, the security guard who is in love with Nina, is it enough for him to agree to all of these things? So just ensuring that that is at a setup and the objects of desire is a great place to check that. So the next one is the controlling idea or theme. A crime story is about justice and injustice. And in this case, because they get away with the crime, we would think like, oh, well, does that mean that it's, you know, tyranny reigns or something like that? But as Leslie pointed out, it's really a sense of poetic justice where we're starting out the story towards a sense of unfairness and tyranny and that by them 
completing this crime, they're actually obtaining a sense of justice because either the villain deserves to get taken down, they deserve to get stolen from, maybe like in the case of Ocean's Eleven, it's like a, a payback sort of thing, or, you know, they've been mistreated and so they deserve what they're getting. So, so here, what I would say is the controlling idea would be poetic justice prevails when everyday people band together to cheat the system, but never cheat each other. It's, it's a really interesting premise to build a story around. <laughs> um, okay, so we've gone through the six core questions, and now we're on to question number seven, which is my personal favorite, and that is the good examples question. So here we want to talk about good examples of scene types or outstanding tropes or clear and tie-ins to other genres, or basically things that we found of note in the story. Leslie, would you like to start us off, please? Sure. So I found an interesting note. I haven't confirmed this generally, but an, a note about the audience emotion for capers that they evoke schadenfreude, which is a great word. And that's that German term for deriving pleasure from another person's suffering. So at times we all feel powerless to control our circumstances and we enjoy seeing characters who can take control and they do that in the context of a story so we can experience the journey without taking the risk. And I think that goes to the point you were making, Valerie, about how, ooh, that controlling idea, I don't know about that. And I think if they set it up where we really relate to the characters and really feel sympathy for them, we're okay with them getting one over on the, the system, the man, because we feel so sorry for them. And we've been there too wasn't very effective in this film, but that's something you'd want to understand if you're trying to write a caper. Anne, did you have anything you wanted to add? This movie really broke the reality rule for me, and I think it did for all of us. It's set up as a comedy in a pretty realistic world. It's not a completely unbelievable world. It's a world where if you rack up a quarter million dollars in debt, you're probably going to have to sell your house and get a job. In the name of comedy, it does ask me to stretch my my credulity a little bit, like to the point where I could believe that, okay, maybe you could put a, a shredder over your toilet and flush that much money down, maybe. But in that same world, and this is where it goes too far for me, in that same world, they show Bridget as being unemployable, and yet she gets this decent-paying government job with benefits, they make that specific, and she goes from being this helpless rich woman who doesn't even know how to clean her own house, also explicit in the story, to a criminal mastermind, the only person in the world who thought that up. I mean, that's a line. That's one of her lines. She says that. Overnight, she becomes capable of robbing the Federal Reserve, which also is explicit in the text that it is the second most secure place in the world after Fort Knox. The currency isn't serial numbered. It isn't weighed or counted. The security is run by this moron. There's a tiny flaw in this massive security system that can be exploited by a $10 Home Depot lock, which conveniently, you know, even the bankrupt Bridget can afford. So as Robert McKee says, and this is a quote from Story, consistent realities are fictional settings that establish modes of interaction between the characters and their world that are kept consistently throughout the telling to create meaning. Consistent reality, therefore, means an internally consistent world true to itself. Now, to my mind, better comedy, better dialogue, more clearly drawn characters with clearer motivations, any of those things might have helped me suspend my disbelief over this story. 
But unfortunately, the comedy wasn't that good. The characters had no driving motivation that I could see. And the dialogue was really cliched. So I walked away deeply annoyed with this movie. And the fact that Bridget could get a job as a janitor and somehow get them out of that massive debt when presumably they still have huge bills because their house is palatial. I mean, it is enormous. So how that kind of a salary could possibly be an answer to their troubles was, yeah, was another thing. And I agree with everything you just said. And I just got to the point where I thought, okay, yeah, I can't stretch this far. This is too much. (laughs) (laughs) It's like stretch and then break the rubber band. I mean, I, it's like every part of this movie is predictable. Bridget getting the job as a janitor of the Fed. It's just not even believable. I mean, she's a Stepford wife. There's just no way she would do this. And to your point, Anne, to figure out that she's the only one that could figure out how to get this cheap old Home Depot lock and change all the stuff under the watching eyes of every security camera on the planet. (sighs) Everything is telegraphed. You got the money coming out of Jackie's pants. You get losing the key in the sink. You got Bridget's freak out in the bathroom. You got the boss picking up Bridget's badge. You got Bridget having a stash of cast in the basement. You got the security guard catching Nina with the money and him being okay with it. It's just not innovated at all. And that's, I think, part of the thing that really disappointed me with this because I kind of love these things. I mean, I there's one movie that came out recently called Logan Lucky, which is more of a heist. And we had talked about a heist being from professionals, whereas a caper is kind of amateurs coming into their own and actually doing something um, to right or wrong. Like there's some injustice that they're trying to like fight against. And even though that was an equally kind of silly, dumb movie, I mean, it was really unique in the way they did it. And and you could, it was believable. The only other kind of example of a caper that was done a lot better. And I know some of us don't like Ben Stiller on the podcast, hint, hint, um, but uh, was Tower Heist. That actually from a caper point of view, um, had all the elements and was innovative and you felt for them. I mean, you really, really felt for them. I felt for none of these characters, even though I really wanted to feel for Nina. I just, just was just disappointed. So just further to what we've been talking about so far, for me, the key takeaway from this film is this. While stories have form, they should not be formulaic. When we talk about story principles like obligatory scenes and conventions, many writers cry foul and they say that the story grid or Robert McKee or any of the other people who study story form are actually talking about a formula for writing novels and that it stifles creativity. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. Obligatory scenes and conventions, for example, are about meeting audience expectations, but they're a bare minimum. What the audience really wants is innovation. We've seen stories like Mad Money a hundred times. We've seen characters like Bridget and Nina and Jackie a hundred times. What writers need to do, and I'm putting myself in this category as well, is show us a new take on the hero lashing out or on the objects of desire. When a story like Mad Money fails to innovate, it's formulaic and it's, I'm going to say it, it's lazy writing. Again, I'll quote Robert McKee, story is about principles, not rules. So when you're writing your novel, think of all the ways you can present the various elements of your story. Your first 10 or 20 ideas are going to be cliche, and that's true for seasoned professionals as well as emerging authors. 
I'm a big Breaking Bad fan, and I like to listen to interviews with Vince Gilligan and and uh, other writers on the show. And you hear them talk about this all of the time. In their writing room, they would toss out idea after idea, and they'd all be cliche until finally they hit on something that was innovative. And look at the big hit Breaking Bad was, right? So if you're willing to do the hard work of digging deeper and challenging yourself as a writer, then you'll begin to find ways to innovate. And that, in my opinion, is when the magic starts to happen. Okay, that wraps it up for this week. Thank you so much, Anne, Jari, Kim, and Leslie, for your excellent editorial insights, as always, into Mad Money. We hope our discussion helps you write a better crime story. As always, you can find The Foolscap and other materials in the show notes at storygrid.com. And we'd like to invite our listeners in the StoryGrid community to comment, argue with us on our interpretations, and if you have a favorite movie that you'd like us to look at, suggest it to us on Twitter at StoryGridRT. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by telling other writers about us and by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Join us again next time when we bring the morality genre in for a rough landing with Flight, the 2012 drama by Robert Zemeckis starring Denzel Washington. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Thank you.